The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, special guest Jim Bianco. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his research, his media appearances, and I'm excited for for this conversation here. All right, so Jim, I don't want to bury the lead. You put a, a tweet out. I'll share it in the space around the link uh, of oil to recessions. And when I put the the tweet out for the space, it got a tremendous uh, amount of engagement, number of likes and retweets. So. I want you to first lay out the history of oil shocks when it comes to economic contractions and then talk about where we are today. Yeah, so oil energy is a critical part of the U.S. economy. And the history of oil has been that we have supply shocks, you know, regularly over our last 50 or 60 year history, whether it was the Arab oil embargo of the 1970s or it was the Gulf War in 1990, or it was Libya in 2011. We've had or a number of hurricanes that come in and break oil infrastructure in the Gulf Coast. We've had a number of oil shocks. And every time we've had an oil shock, like we're having now, and I should point out to everybody, just so we're on the same page, the largest oil producer in the world today by country is the United States at around 13 or 14 million barrels a day. Number two is Russia at around 11 or 12 million barrels a day. And number three is Saudi Arabia at a little under 10. So now we're, we're talking about another oil supply shock coming out of the second largest country producer in the world. Whenever those shocks have produced a 50% rise in the price of oil, which it has, there's been a recession that has followed soon thereafter. But we've also had recessions for other reasons. So as the way I put it was, not every recession preceded is preceded by a 50% rise in oil, but every 50% rise of oil prices has preceded a recession. And we're which, is, that, which is, by the way, that's similar to sort of the argument that an inverted yield curve uh, tends to occur prior to recession, but not every inverted yield curve necessarily leads to one. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a, a comeback to that. And that the percentage of GDP that is used in energy has been on a downtrend. We've been getting more efficient. You know, cars get further, more miles per gallon. And so we don't need as much. And so therefore, maybe 
this can be the 50% rise in oil that doesn't produce a recession. And that's actually a valid argument. But my retort to that was, who said we're done at 50%? You know, I don't know. Maybe we are. Maybe in, in a month we're at 75 or 100%. And, and that would only further that argument as well, too. But historically, whenever we've seen an oil price rise like this, and that it is sustained, that would be the other argument, too, the other assumption. You know, we're going to talk about that. We had, we've had this tremendous run-up in crude oil prices this week, one of the biggest weeks we've ever seen. And you know, if it turns around and it deflates right back down next week, that's a different story, too. But if we sustain this rise of oil, you would expect it to elicit a big drag on the economy. And the the key there is that that word spike, right? It's about the speed of the move. I've always held this belief that there's this there's this argument that oil is inflationary. That's true if the move is gradual, but I would argue it's much more deflationary because of the hit to margins if it's too quick. I would I would definitely agree with that. You know, there's a phrase that we like to use on Wall Street, whether it's a stock or a flow, and this is kind of the same type of thing. You know, the the level of crude oil prices means one thing, but the speed at which we change them can really alter what they what their meaning is whether or not it's fast or slow do you have a sense of where what level or or for how long the price needs to be where it is for demand destruction to start taking place because it does take, does take time for it to filter through to the economy yeah and i think that that's the real question that needs to be asked is where is the price of crude oil going to peak and i've always liked to say that a trend in a market especially commodity won't stop until you get a change of behavior. So the price of crude oil, therefore gasoline, will keep going up until we get people to park their cars and stop driving them. Not everybody, but enough that we have demand destruction. That's an open question as to where that demand destruction will occur. And the reason I say that is, go a little more existential for you, existential, I'm of this opinion that the biggest economic event of our lifetime, economic event of our lifetime, was we sent everybody home for a year in 2020. And coming out of that, there has been there has been a bunch of regime shift changes in the economy, remote work being the biggest, that when the one that we all understand. And so many things have changed that we still don't understand. So in a prior world, we might look back at the price of crude oil or price of gasoline and say, you know, in 2014, the price of gasoline was almost $4 a gallon, where it's $373 now. And the economy was humming along just fine. And the Fed kept rates at zero. And we didn't really have any inflation. So, you know, $373 is, is not a big deal. No, no problem. And that might be the case. But in this case, I think that $4 gasoline in 2022 will have a much bigger drag on the economy than $4 gasoline did in 2014. So if I had to guess, I think that the level at to which we would start to see demand destruction is lower post-pandemic than it might have been pre-pandemic. I haven't done this research, but my, my sense is that if you were to look at the relationship of agriculture to oil that ag outpaced oil and now that oil is is spiking it obviously has an input cost also to, to to farming right so it seems to me that the real concern actually may not just be oil itself but now the knock-on effects on already elevated food prices i'm curious to hear your 
your thoughts on how food prices are, are shaping up here and how that might impact the economy. I think that you're right, that food prices, and I think that the market is just kind of coming into consciousness that food prices might be as big a deal as energy prices are right now. And it, just a couple of quick things. If you look at some of the price movements in agricultural commodities, soybean oil, all-time high, all-time high. They've been trading this stuff since the 19th century, and it's, a, and it's at an all-time high. Soybean prices are just a couple of pennies from an all-time high. Wheat, second highest price that it's ever been. The UN Food Index is still only updated through January, and it was the second highest print it ever had. And I'd like to say when I get the February and probably March updates, I'm going to have to rescale my chart when I when I put it out. And by the way, the all-time high in food prices, according to the UN Food Index, was 2011, which sparked the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring started in 2011 out of Egypt as a, as a protest about high prices, which then mushroomed into something more. And by the way, 95% of the grain that Egypt imports comes from the Ukraine or Russia um, right now. And they're back to those same levels of prices that they were in 2011. So if you look at near all-time highs and some of the highest prices ever in food, you know what we, we all know, we just got done talking about energy. Industrial prices, whether you're talking about aluminum or copper uh, or zinc, that in aggregate, those are at all-time highs. That's one of the reasons why I think that $4 gasoline will hurt a lot more now than 2014. Because 2014, you had $4 gasoline with everything else very low. But now you'd have $4 gasoline with everything else at record highs. And the last stat I'll give you, I tweeted this chart out too, is that the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index was started in 1969. This week, it's up 14%. This is the biggest week in its history. That it's ever so that's 52 years of commodity prices. We've never seen a, a rise in all commodity prices as we have seen this week. And that is going to feed through into more inflation as as those prices start working through the supply chain system. So I've had a number of guests, Jim, who've talked about kind of horrendous energy policy that we would not be in as vulnerable position if you did not have so much focus on this ESG mandate and focusing on alternative energy. And, you know, it's the pendulum always swings, right, from one extreme to the other. Play on a thought experiment with me on this. If energy policy were not as anti-oil the last several years, would oil still be spiking the way that it is? Because it seems to me that no matter what, you're going to have some real disruptions with war, with, with everything else that's going on. It's not just sort of a, a U.S. supply story, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, you're, you're right that policy has been insane. And the problem is, is that in the West, because of environmental concerns, ESG concerns, we do push back on energy exploration, energy production in the United States. And let me throw Canada in there, too. I mean, we could be multiples of what the Middle East is producing in the United States and Canada if we elected to be that. We don't. You want an example of how insane our, our energy policy is? We haven't built a, a new refinery since the 1970s. Now, we've added on to existing refineries. And in the last 10 years, we've had this big boom of fracking and shale oil. Well, the problem with shale oil is of its sulfur content, that we don't have the proper refineries to put the shale order in, into U.S. refineries to turn it into gasoline. 
So what do we do with it? We ship it overseas. And then what do we do? We import different sulfur content oil that will work in U.S. refineries in order to make gasoline. And guess where we get a lot of that lower content sulfur? We get it from the Soviet, I was going to say the Soviet Union. We get it from the former Soviet Union countries, primarily Russia. So we produce all this oil, but the environmentalists won't let us make a new or two new refinery plants to produ- to turn shale oil into gasoline. So we have to send it to another country and we have to bring in different grades that would work with ours. It's, it's just so insane. Our, you know, if, if, if our politicians got together 50 years ago and said, let's put together a set of policies to wreck the oil industry, that's pretty much what they've done over the last 50 years or so. And the oil industry's done a very valiant effort to try and fight back against it. But you're right. If we had been, if we were more interested in energy security, we would probably be able to be easily self-sufficient in the United States and have it oil be produced in stable countries that you wouldn't have to worry about this kind of stuff. All right. So just to be devil's advocate on that, because there's a there's a line you have to to walk with that, right? Because for alternative energy to have a diversified source of energy, right? You've got to have oil prices be elevated enough to make the production of alternative energy more uh, focused and more economical and, and all this, right? So it, it seems to me that you have to kind of walk this fine balance between having ample oil, ample energy in safe countries, like you mentioned, but also having diversification, right? But you can't get the diversification through alternative energy unless oil prices are are on average fairly elevated. So uh, I, I, talk through that because I think that's, that's sort of – I feel like the alternative energy crowd and the oil crowd are talking past each other. They, they both kind of arguably need each other to some extent. Yeah. I mean, basically the way you explained it, are you, are we saying that alternative energy is uneconomic unless we drive the price of oil up to make it economic? But, I, I think that's largely true. I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a lot large, large argument for that. Yeah. Yes. And as far as, as far as the alternative energy crowd goes, look, there's, there's lots of different energy needs for lots of different reasons. There's energy needs that we need to power our cars. There's energy needs we need to heat spaces. There's energy needs that we need to make electricity. There's energy needs all over the place that we have that we could use alternative sources of energy to do other things as well too. Electric cars might be, you know, a, a, a great example of that. You know, we, we're, all, we're all big in electric cars. They have no emissions. That's nice. But where are we making the where are we making the power to power these cars in dirty electrical plants because we're all against building the cleanest form of energy which is nuclear because there's no there's no emissions from nuclear i know unless there's a meltdown but there's only been one meltdown of any consequence and that was actually in the ukraine which is chernobyl but there hasn't been any other one since the invention of nuclear energy in the 1940s it, it, but is it fair to say that that a lot of this policy, you know, we're directing it as being horrendous in the U.S., but I have to presume it's far worse when it comes to Europe, right? I mean, they're in much worse shape than, than we are. Oh, yes. You know, because they, you know, if you want to talk about Germany and talk about Europe, they've made a big push to be green. And in a lot of ways, the push to be green is a bit of an arrogance by the West. We're going to be green. We are not going to have this stuff produced in our country. We'll get it from somewhere else, Russia, where they're not green, but we could virtue signal that we're green here. So now you've made yourself dependent on Russia. They are closing or mothballing 
their nuclear power plants. Okay, they still need electricity. Where do they get it from? Natural gas. They make their electricity through natural gas, and that's why they get their natural gas from Russia. And now they're afraid, terrified, to cut off the natural gas supply. And, you know, talking about ESG, I don't know if you saw this Bloomberg story that came out two days ago, you know, that a lot of the ESG in Europe is now thinking about arms manufacturers, exempting them from ESG. So last week, arms manufacturers were a terrible thing, according to ESG investing. But this week, circumstances have changed, and now we're going to open it up, and that ESG investors can now buy arms manufacturers. So, I mean, this is the problem with 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 highly political things like ESG. And I mean, I could I could rail on that forever. The other big problem I have with ESG is it's all E, right? It's all energy. Where is the social and governance parts of, of, of it, the S and the G? Why don't we ban China if we're talking about social and governance under ESG? Never even comes up as far as the discussion. All it is is about energy. It's all ESG is. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive thirty percent off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. All right, so, so let's play it out. So oil stays <clears> elevated, <throat> keeps going higher, stays that way for some time. There's demand destruction. The Fed presumably then starts reversing course, but it seems to me that if the Fed's response is to do then another round of QE, another drop in rates, something they've already risen, that that would only accentuate oils move higher, right? It, it seems to me that if you have an, an oil price-driven recession, there's really not much the Fed can do to counter it. Disagree. Let me disagree with you in this respect. We, we have an inflation problem for the first time in 40 years. Part of that inflation problem is a supply chain constraint. But, important to note, every inflation problem has a supply chain component to it. Arthur Burns in the 1970s was reluctant to raise rates because it was an Arab oil embargo. And the Fed can't do anything about an Arab oil embargo. So why are we going to raise rates? Ultimately, what has happened to cause an inflation problem is your economy's out of balance. The demand for stuff is outstripping the supply of the stuff. And so the only way to adjust that is through higher prices. The Fed has the ability to raise rates in order to address that. Now, that's a fancy way of saying if the Fed is going to raise rates to deal with an inflation problem, the goal of that is to make portfolio managers' lives miserable. The goal of that is to hit demand, pull back demand in order to bring things back into balance. Now, why? Why would the Fed do that? Because there's two arguments I would give you. One, and I've used this statistic many times. The Fed has a triennial survey of consumer finance. That means it was done in 2019, and they'll do another one this summer. And in 2019, they said, and it was it made a lot of news at the time, 40% of the public has less than $1,000 of savings, and they rent. Those people are crushed by higher 
prices. They pay, they get less at the grocery store, less at the pump, less at the store because of rising prices. Now, everybody that is not in that category owns a home, has some financial assets. And we look around and we say, you know, it is a, I see that everything I'm paying for is more expensive. But the stock market, the S&P was up 29% last year. Case Schiller says that home prices were up 18% last year. I'm better off now than I was a year, uh, January of 21. 40% of the public is demonstrably worse off than they were in January of 21. They are unbelievably upset about this. This is why the president's approval rating is tanking. Congress's approval rating is tanking. The University of Michigan consumer confidence numbers are at recessionary levels. Right now, Richard Curtin, who runs that survey, has stated that it's all about inflation. And the public knows it's all, I mean, the congressmen and politicians know it's all about inflation. So, Jay, you got a choice. 40% of the public is getting crushed here because of higher prices. You're going to do something for them? Well, raise, raise, raise rates, slow demand, bring that back into balance. But 10% of the public here, is going to be pissed off that their SPYs are going to go down. You can't help both of them, Jay. You got to pick one. And the one I think he's going to pick is going to be the 40%. Or, as I've argued, the Fed's priority has changed. And I'll say this strongly to get my point across. We don't need to talk about growth anymore. We don't need to talk about earnings anymore. We need to talk about prices. That's all it is. The Fed is going to start raising rates. And when are they going to stop? When prices come down. That's exactly what Volcker did in, in the late 1970s. And I think the Fed is going to be under that kind of pressure. And the Fed is under that kind of pressure. Can I just throw out two other quick things and I'll take questions or, or push back on this. Jay Powell is speaking. I'm looking at my TV right now as we talk. And yesterday when he was speaking, he was Jay Powell and it said chairman pro tempore. And what that means is he's the temporary Federal Reserve chairman. His term expired January 31st. He was nominated by the president, but the Senate has not confirmed him through a vote. And they're nowhere near converting him through a vote anytime soon. Senate Fed rules say if the new guy is not confirmed by January 31st, the end of the old guy's term, the old guy stays until the new guy gets confirmed. In this case, the old guy and the new guy are the same guy, Jay Powell. So Jay has the Senate hanging over his head. At any moment, if he displeasures the Senate, they could just march right down to the Senate floor and vote him out tomorrow, this afternoon, if that's what they wanted to do. The Fed is more politicized now than it's ever been. And what did, you know, on NPR last night, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors was interviewed and asked about inflation. And their answer was, it's the responsibility of the Federal Reserve. Jay, the Democrat Party is being crushed because of inflation, and they're going to get slaughtered in November. Now, if inflation falls, that might not save them. But without an inflation fall, they have no choice. Jay, it's your job to bring inflation down. And if you don't, we still have to vote on your confirmation. They're in an awful position right now, the Fed. And that's why I think... They've got no choice but to get aggressive and hike and hike and hike. 
And if if the ten percent that own stocks scream and scream and scream, hey, you know, you're 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 well off and richly educated. You're just going to have to deal with it because the forty percent are beside themselves and how angry they are about inflation. Please make sure you follow Jim Bianco. Check out his deeper research and and obviously hopefully follow all of us here. Now let me start with the idea about Putin and and an ESG. I think that Putin correctly called one thing when he rolled into the Ukraine, that Western leaders are weak and feckless. They all are. I'm not picking on any one of them. They all are. And that they would- Can I get an amen from everybody? Because that's- Continue, please. Yeah. Yes. And so he thought that they would stomp their feet and bloviate and then put on a bunch of nothing sanctions, and this would eventually just dissipate and go away. And last Thursday- when they announced all their sanctions highlighted by President Biden, that's exactly what we got. But what Putin and I would say those weak, feckless Western leaders also didn't anticipate is the world is run by world opinion through social media and that everything changed when Zelensky said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And that the world opinion galvanized in favor of doing more for Ukraine. And you saw it with the protests over the weekend and then with the disconnecting at SWIFT and we see moving forward. And then Apple comes out and says that they're going to stop work doing business in Russia. Yeah, it's very small. It's more virtual signaling. But at least they said it. BP is leaving. Shell is leaving. And then yesterday, the one industry that is not really doing voluntary restrictions has been financial services. But we started getting the beginnings of that with MSCI removing Russia from their emerging market index and FTSE Russell and S&P Dow start doing that as well, too. So what we've seen is the public is demanding more and more be done. Now, if you take that to its next step, I mentioned about let's let's rethink the arms manufacturers for ESG. I think that we're going to have to have a question about E in the ESG. And I've always asked the question, can Exxon ever do something that would make them eligible for an ESG portfolio? Conversely, how much worse does Facebook have to act to ever get tossed out of an ESG? Because they're pretty bad on the S and the G when it comes to Facebook. But yet we never, ever consider, let's throw Facebook out of out of a portfolio because of ESG. But, you know, Exxon could, you know, they, they jump through hoops and they try and try to become ESG eligible, but they're in the energy business. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the energy business. So you're telling me that they can never, ever be in it. And I think that they're starting to become a rethink about ESG, about, yeah, maybe there is criteria that energy companies can qualify. And maybe there is criteria that, you know, woke tech companies can get kicked out if they beat misbehave. And so I think that there is, you know, we're starting to think about it in both of those directions. I don't know, Michael, would you got a thought about it? Yeah. I mean, I think the pain has to be longer lasting and you'd probably have to have, you know, I mean, that, that seems to be the clearest way to get the Republicans in, in power, right? It's just, you know, it ends up being extended pain there and then the Republicans come in and they just counter any kind of ESG mandates and roll back things. I mean, it, it's certainly possible, but I guess the, the point is it would, it wouldn't be fast enough regardless Right. In, in terms of the speed of that. Yes, that's true. If, if we're talking about reversing ESG to allow more energy investment, 
Okay, that's a five-year fix. It's right. not a ten-year a ten-year fix. It's good. It's better than not doing it. But if the answer is, will that help us get the Russians out of the Ukraine and resolve this crisis? No, it can't because we don't we don't want to wait five years to resolve this crisis. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I think that part of that also could be something that I was talking about a minute ago that we're not waiting for governments to decide sanctions that companies are basically, and maybe the NASDAQ being one example of that are basically taking it upon themselves to either distance themselves or self sanction Russia in ways. And that that's why this is becoming so much bigger than just waiting for Brussels and Washington to tell us what they're going to do. 70%, by the way, I'll give you a statistic that comes from Aspect Energy that was a BBC story that I read yesterday. 70% of Russian uh, energy is not being delivered. No, that oil companies are not bidding on their product, even though they're offering it for its less of up to $20 below. They're not being up. Now, the, the Germans are worried about an oil embargo and what that would mean for Germany. There is an effective oil embargo right now because of that. So when you start looking at what the, you know, the NASDAQ might be doing with these securities and stuff, companies are stepping up left and right and deciding to do less with Russia, self-imposed restrictions on Russia. Now, there's one giant example, exception to that list, banking. Banking has not stepped up and done anything voluntarily to pull back from doing business with Russia. In fact, Jamie Dimon went out as far on, on Tuesday and said, oh, yeah, but if you disconnect it from SWIFT, there's ways around it. And he said bad actors will find ways around it. And I think what he meant was J.P. Morgan will find ways around it. You know, J.P. Morgan <laughs> wants J.P. Morgan wants you, you government to put on restrictions so we can get 38 lawyers to figure out how to work around those restrictions, where everybody else seems to be saying, including BP, let's just walk away from them right now. Let's just let's just uh, walk away. And and they're not ready to do that. Banking is they're the one exception. So I think what you're seeing in with the Nasdaq is part of that voluntary decision that people are making. And again, weak leaders, world opinion is driven by Twitter, the leader of the free world this week. He won't be forever, but this week is Zelensky and that, you know, that everybody is responding to public opinion including Brussels and Washington. They're lagging this. And that's what I think you're seeing with a lot of this stuff. And we'll see how much, how long it lasts. And we'll see what kind of resolve the world has. Do they, are they all, are they all into wearing blue and yellow right now? But then in two weeks when we have to pay dramatically higher energy prices and then we rethink this and we have a different opinion, maybe, but you know, cause we've never done this before. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. By the way, I will say real quick, it, it is interesting that I know there's an assumption that you, you will not have boots on the ground. The U.S. will not get involved. But 
uh, I mean, the cynic in me says that most wars that America gets involved in, in some way, shape or form, are, are tied to oil. More of a maybe side note to talk about. Yeah. So on your first question about GDP, so Atlanta Fed has what's called the GDP Now for, forecast, and that's a, a that's a, a GDP tracker. I like to use the analogy that it's like me taking your time at, at, in a marathon at 10 miles and figuring out what your pace was and then projecting from after 10 miles what you're going to finish the race at. So that's kind of what it does. They're projecting first quarter, first quarter at zero right now. Yeah, maybe that's off and maybe the data will come in, you know, tomorrow's payroll number might be a little bit stronger than people think or or not. And that could adjust it. But we're probably looking at a very, very low real growth number and at the same time, very high inflation. And that brings us to the S word that no one wants to talk about. And that's stagflation as well. So, yeah, I could definitely see in the second and third quarter that you could potentially continue that slow growth, whether or not it dips below zero remains to be seen. We have to see how much more damage we wind up doing. To your point about fiscal stimulus, as I mentioned before, we only have 49 Democrat senators right now till Lujan comes back and Cinema and Manchin will never vote for it. And no Republican will vote for fiscal stimulus, even if they think it's a good idea, because they know politically they can just keep pounding the Democrats with the reason we're in this position is your last set of fiscal stimulus. So maybe if the Republicans become the majority, they might reconsider that. But that's a year away. That's a year away. And that's a maybe uh, as well, too. So, yeah, I could definitely see that real growth will continue to be slower. And getting back to my earlier comments, if the Fed pivots and says our priority is inflation and they have to just keep hiking and hiking into that slowness, you'll see the yield curve invert. And, and it'll probably continue to worsen. Now, I don't want to go too far off on the bearish deep end, you know, and try and, you know, be alarmist. But there's a lot of things that are working against this market right now. Yeah. So a quick word on that. I found this to be very rare that we see this. As of yesterday's close, the market had six hikes priced in for this year. First right. five, five for five. First five meetings, one hike each meeting. One hike being 25 basis points, and then a sixth one. Yet about 100% of people that offer an opinion about rate hikes think that they're going to come in less. And I want to emphasize what I said before, because everybody's thinking about growth. I think the reason that the market's got six rate hikes priced in and everybody goes, well, they're not going to do that, is that the short-term debt traders, we're talking about Fed funds traders, T-bill traders, repo traders, Fed, those types of traders that are that are pricing this stuff in, I think they get it and that it's about prices. And when the Fed starts raising rates and they start hiking and hiking, I'm of the opinion they're going to go six, if not seven. And why? Because they're going to be looking at the CPI report to decide when to stop. They're not going to be looking at the GDP report to decide when to stop. I think that, and yes, I am saying that they're going to make a mistake. And I'm saying that they have no choice but to make that mistake because they've put themselves so far behind the eight ball. I think if the Fed were to raise rates three times, GDP was to waver, and then they were to say, well, we can't raise rates anymore, and inflation stays six, seven, eight percent. I think that the, the, we'd have, you, you think it's bad now in this country, we'd have near revolution in this country. We forget how upset this country was in the 70s about inflation. We forget the protests 
and the fights. We forget, you know, that a crazy guy with a shotgun broke into the Fed in December of 81 and wanted to take the FOMC hostage. Yes, this happened. And wanted to take the FOMC hostage and make them lower interest rates and put them on trial for treason. And he was he was stopped by security before anybody was hurt. We forget how you think a bear market's bad. Inflation, 10 percent inflation is far worse. And we forgot how bad that was. And that's why I think ultimately we're going to relearn that and why the Fed is going to have to deal with prices first, second and third. So, yeah, I think that the, the numbers will be weak, but I don't think the Fed can do anything about it until prices come down. Now, they could break the economy. We could have a recession that could kill demand. That'll bring down prices and then they could start easing all over again. But that might be what it what it might have to take in order to get them to stop raising rates. But yeah, I think you're right that what they've been doing is they've been trying to buy carbon offsets or renewables or alternate energy companies to try and, and, and get the left off their back and try and, and, you know, and, and try and get on the good graces of ESG investors. And maybe what's happened in the last week and will happen moving forward is there's a rethink about energy security. And if there is a rethink about energy security, we turn to them and say, start start increasing production in stable places that we don't have to worry about getting our energy from those stable places. Like Wyoming, if you want a name of one stable place, you could probably start getting more or maybe uh, North Dakota or maybe, you know, you know, Western Ontario, uh, Western Canada or something like that. There's a lot of oil in those places if we really wanted to, you know, to start getting it up. And, you know, there, we're still not there yet. The administration is still not talking about, you know, easing off on leases, maybe easing off and letting us build, you know, more pipelines to move the oil around yet. But, you know, let's give it a couple of more weeks and let's see what happens. Okay, so... Jim, you sent me this it's an interesting way to frame it, and I want you to kind of expand on this idea that money has been weaponized. You mentioned between Canadian truckers and Russia, that's not going to be undone, and that that weaponization is the best commercial for crypto one could have possibly designed. Now, I'm of the opinion that the Coinbase <laughs> QR code commercial was the best commercial for, for crypto, but but uh, <laughs> tease that tease that out a bit as far as this 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 argument that weapon that money is now weaponized and, and what are the implications? I actually was pr- pretty fond of the Larry David commercial too. I but, totally agree. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let me give you four real quick events. Late January, Hayden Adams. Hayden Adams is the creator of Uniswap, which is the largest decentralized exchange. He tweeted out that without warning or reason. Chase closed his bank account, sent him a check for all the money in his bank account and said, go find another bank. And he pointed out in a follow up tweet that other people in the crypto space have been experiencing similar things that traditional banks have been just summarily closing their accounts. And he said, thanks for making it personal. So it looks like that the traditional banking system is looking at startups that they think might threaten them and just stopping doing business with them. So all of a sudden, this, the the reliability of your money in a TradFi account is only as good as you just not doing anything to badmouth a bank or or try and take them on in competition. Second quick thing, the truckers raised money from GoFundMe, $9 million, beginning of February, exactly a month ago. The Canadian government put pressure on GoFundMe. GoFundMe made an announcement that the Canadian truckers are bad, so we're going to close their account. Okay. 
And then they made this unbelievable announcement of GoFundMe. You have to figure out how to request a refund for your donation. If you don't request a refund for your donation, we, GoFundMe, will take your money and donate it to a charity of our choice. They effectively were going to steal their money. And they were probably going to send it to Black Lives Matters or whatever they think that uh, was important to them uh, as well. Then under social media pressure, they backed off and then they voluntarily sent all the money back to the truckers. Third thing, uh, the Emergencies Act in Canada, where they went after the money of all of the where they, they, they froze the bank accounts of all of the protesters without due process. And. They said there was this thing. I don't know, Michael, if you've ever heard of it. It's called a retroactive law. So if you in late January gave the truckers a donation and it was perfectly legal, well, under the Emergencies Act, now retroactively, that's illegal. And we're going to freeze your bank account. You're not just going to punish you. We're going to freeze your bank account without due process. And then fourth was what we did to Russia. And I think if you sum it all up, people have got to come to the conclusion that everybody that's listening to us on Twitter spaces, me and Michael included, all of our net worths are zero. All of our money is held by our financial institutions. It is their money. As long as we stay in their good graces and do not make them, give them any reason to be mad at us, they've got a little ledger that says, I get to use some of their money. Michael gets to use some of their money. Everybody else gets to use some of their money which is what we think is the amount of money in our, in our checking accounts. And we've seen in the last month, they'll do it to an individual and they'll, they'll do and, and, and a bank will do it to an individual on its own and they'll do it to a country. And now we have to start to wonder, where can I put my money that no one can take it away from me? Where can I put my money, whether I'm a, whether I'm a government or an institution and we have an alternative and that alternative is an electronic wallet and a private key and owning a cryptocurrency that is immutable and can't be hacked. And I think what you've seen in the last couple of weeks is that happening. One, there's an internet blockchain firm called Keiko that has been running some charts that are all over the internet, that there's been a huge surge of transactions going rubles to Bitcoin, rubles to Tether, which is a stable coin. And we've also seen that up until about two weeks ago, there was a high correlation between Bitcoin and cryptos in the S&P. And the reason I think that there was this high correlation is because cryptos, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of adoption by institutional investors. What does that mean in English? Oh, some, some pension plan or some mutual fund opened a Coinbase account and bought a bunch of Bitcoin. Okay, well, how are they going to decide how to value it and what they're going to do with it? They treat it like a technology. They treat it like it's another version of the ARK Innovation Fund. So it goes up and down with the S&P. And now we have found another use case. And that correlation between the traditional stock, the S&P and Bitcoin is starting to fray. And I'm careful with those words, starting to fray. I don't want to say it's broken. Maybe it reconnects you know, next week or the week after. But at least it's starting to fray. And I think it all comes back to we've weaponized money. Money is your bank account and my bank account is the new form of canceling. Uh, whether in whether that's me, you or Russia, we are canceling. Now, it's one thing to throw you off of Facebook if you misbehave or throw you off of Twitter if you misbehave. Now, if you misbehave, we're going to take your money away from you. And that is a very, very unsettling. 
And what do I do to protect myself? And that's where cryptocurrencies are coming in. And since we've weaponized money like that, we're going to have to start thinking about money being weaponized. And I think that's going to lower the overall valuation of money as that realization comes in. Depends on how much we've weaponized it as to how much we're going to lower it. Yeah, so a couple of things about that. You know, maybe people listening might say, I think the truckers were bad. I think that Putin was bad. And I think that what we did, what the Canadian government did to the truckers or what we did to Putin was, was justified. Okay, fine. Let's just say that it was. But what do we know about when you give government, and this is every government all the time, if you give them these kind of powers, eventually what happens? They abuse it. They will abuse it eventually. Maybe you, all, all powers, look, the Patriot Act from 20 years ago, it's the Patriot Act has been abused over the last 20 years as well, too. And so you might think that these were justified things, but eventually over time, they are going to get abused. Now, to your point about T plus one, T plus three, I've always railed about whenever I hear regulators say that they're worried about cryptocurrencies because of financial stability. Let me, let me interpret that. They're worried that the current financial system sucks and can't be trusted, and that this new thing that is a better anti-fragile system could actually break the crappy system that we have right now. So instead of fixing the crappy system that we have right now, let's rein in the better idea. It seems to be what regulators are trying to say. And that's not to say that crypto doesn't have problems, but the current system has an enormous number of problems with it. And yet all we ever do is anybody who attempts to improve upon it, and that's what I think crypto and DeFi is trying to do, is we say, oh no, you might make the lousy system that we use now even worse, so you can't make it better, if you follow what I'm saying. So I agree with you that if 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 the next time a, a regulator says we have to be careful of financial stability issues around crypto, fix your damn system and leave crypto alone is, is, is basically the answer that I try to give them. But they don't want to hear that. Everyone is joined. Please, again, make sure you follow Jim Biago. Check out his research. Jim, I really do appreciate you spending the hour. Thank you, everybody. Okay, thank you, guys. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.